0: materials disclosed on this podcast are deemed to be sales desk literature and subject to our client communication policy and code of conduct, as well as IROC rules.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of Curve Your Enthusiasm. My name is Ian Pollack, Executive Director and Head of Fixed Income, Currency, and Commodity Strategy at CBC Capital Markets. I'm joined today by a very special co-host, as Royce is on vacation for the next two weeks, in the studio today is a good friend of ours, Vivek Barry, Executive Director in our Structured Rates Trading Business. Vivek, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you?
2: I'm doing well Ian, uh, thanks for having me. Um, quite a lot of interesting developments yesterday.
1: For sure, over the past 24 hours, we've seen a lot of discussion coming out from the Jackson Hole Symposium. This year, I'll be honest with you, I was not expecting what happened yesterday. In the lead up to Jackson Hole, I was always thinking from the back of my mind, every year we get a situation where people think that you're going to get some type of policy announcement, some type of new innovation announced by at least one global central banker. Uh, And usually that's not the case. Fed Chairman Powell discussing about the longer run goals, which is the conclusion of the Fed's framework that they've been working on for the past year and a half. Leading into Jackson Hole, expectations were that the Fed was going to introduce some type of adjustment to the way that they have um fought inflation in the past expectations were for a move to an average inflation targeting regime and what we actually got out of the announcement was a very soft version of that expectation so it's a little surprising to me that we saw the market sell off rates steepen the curve the dollar was relatively strong during the day and I think that it's actually a very complex process that the market was interpreting. And I don't think that, at least superficially, many people understand what happened yesterday. When when I think about it, and correct me if you have a different view, Vivek, I think that what was told yesterday was, listen, we no longer have faith in Nairu. We no longer have as much faith as we do to the Phillips curve binding our view on the dual mandate. And in turn, we're now gonna run the economy hot over certain periods of time, And when I look at the reaction in the long end of the curve, I don't think it's a function of more inflation, meaning that the long end has to get disproportionately hit because over many cycles, average inflation is higher. I would actually argue that over the long run, what the Fed did yesterday was actually raise the nominal terminal rate. Because if our star is something that we can't see and our star is assuming it is static over time, the only differential is what inflation is. So over time, if the average inflation is higher, that means your average terminal rate is now higher. And I think, really, that is what the long end was speaking to yesterday. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I would uh, tend to agree um, with your um, previously mentioned points. I would add that I think it's not just our star that's being called into question and moving around. I think it's also U-star and their definition of what unemployment is and what wage growth represents. Um, In the previous FOMC, Powell started mentioning that low-income earners have not really participated in the 10-year boom cycle we've had in employment gains. And so I think this is a a big change to long-end rates and front-end rates going forward. So things that we typically used to look at, like uh, non-farm payrolls, uh, uh, private sector payrolls, um, and wage gains in general, we're going to have to start looking at more... um, granular data points and so when I say granular I mean we're going to to start looking at what underemployment rates look like much as we did back in 2009 and 10 uh, post the GFC. We'll also have to be looking at what the distribution of wage uh, gains look like. Are they also filtering down to low-income workers or are they not? And I think that um, renewed focus from the Fed um, or well change in focus from the Fed uh, should see generally curves steeper as this framework starts to play out. Um, I would also add that um, I do think that they are very happy to have inflation run hot for a period of time, and there may be a little bit more than you stated I think in um, expectations of inflation running hot for a longer period of time are taking hold in the long end let 's also not forget that um, given the backdrop of COVID, there's been a huge amount of issuance increase, um, both in private sector and public sector um, purses. And so that does generally lead to a steeper curve, Um, even though there is QE QE purchasing, um, the distribution should be more front end and belly lit.
1: That's a good point. And, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in the price action yesterday was that it felt to me like the market was totally missing the symmetry in what just happened yesterday. And there's two channels that we can think about this symmetry. The first one is, if you really are in an environment, like you are today, where you're years away from hiking rates anyways, Does it matter if inflation overshoots or undershoots in the near term? Should you be pricing that? I think that's an important thing we need to think about because as you rightly say, you're starting in a very strange environment. We're starting from a COVID type of world where policy is going to be dormant for a very, very long time. But on the other end, if if you draw this to its natural conclusion and whether you think dynamics in the long end are more nuanced because you have higher average inflation or because you have higher average terminal rates, At the end of the day, what we've seen time and time again is that steeper curves do not jive with the equity market. Every time you've had a steeper curve, traditionally it's been a function of some type of shock hitting the economy, which makes policy move, and stocks tend to have a big drawdown. So I'm a bit concerned about the level of risk appetite in conjunction with what we're seeing right now. And then if we take it a little bit further, what we know is that if this engenders a rate spike, does that rate spike begin to undermine equities and is that the automatic stabilizer to ensure that we don't have an environment where we have a near-term taper tantrum?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, um, a fair question. Um, I would say that uh, from a fixed income trader's point of view, um, insofar as credit spreads don't materially widen and cost of funds are not increasingly increasing at a rapid pace, I'm not sure you get a huge equity Follow through, or I.E. sell-off, if long end rates do move another 25 or 30 bps higher. Now, if we move one to two percent higher, I think that could move the needle somewhat as buybacks become more expensive. You know, PEs are already rich in quite a lot, so the cost of the cost of equity buybacks um, increase, and you know that support from the market for the market um, has been invaluable for the past five years.
1: So that's interesting because I think when you look at the parallels to Canada. There's a lot of global macro perception that Canada is also going through a very similar exercise that the Federal Reserve just concluded. And what's not well known outside of Canada is that, in fact, every five years, the Bank of Canada does have to renew its inflation mandate with the federal government. That renewal does take place at the end of 2021. And over the past 48 hours, we've heard from Deputy Governor Shemri. Senior Deputy Governor Wilkins, yesterday Governor Macklem, and they're all talking about this renewal and what are the potential things that Canada can do. And very similar to the Fed, they're talking about price level targeting, average inflation targeting. Do you add a secondary mandate to the singular mandate that the Bank of Canada has? And I don't know if Canada is supposed to be trading as high beta in the curve as it should be because people are maybe incorrectly looking at Canada as changing the way that it does inflation targeting. And I would argue that because Canada has some type of forward guidance slash conditional commitment already, in that conditional commitment period, implicitly you already move to an average inflation targeting regime because if inflation heats up while you provide forward guidance that you're not raising rates because the output gap may not be closed, you're you're implicitly lagging a little bit in terms of your reaction function. So I guess the question I have is, in your specific market, which is vol, Are you seeing any type of pass-through, whether it's the shape of the curve, whether it's changing inflation expectations, how is that impacting your market?
2: Yeah, so I think um, most of the impacts coming through from the U.S. market. And so what you see in the U.S., and that theme should continue, is that um, shorter tails, so options on one-year to to seven-year tails, for example, are really lagging the move in 10-year to 30-year tails. Um, And as you have a steepening... uh, Deepening rate curve, it follows that that process should happen and continue. Um, so, in Canada, for example, we are seeing the upper left sector, so say an option on a one year, one year rate, um, really lagging the moves in one year, ten year rate. And that theme, I think, should continue and play out further. Um, I actually think the entire um, short tail surface will continue to cheapen. Um, is relatively rich to the US right now, um, creating about 10 to 20 percent over. U.S. levels. And I think that's unfair, uh, to be honest with you, and for the reasons you mentioned, um, that we do have a uh, implicit um, average inflation sort of target now, with the bank being uh, giving forward guidance that policy rates will remain low for the foreseeable future. Um, these themes, I think, haven't really taken hold sufficiently well, and that's why we are rich to the U.S. But I think over the fullness of time, we'll start to see that um, uh, move significantly and demand will increase for protection on 20-year and 30-year rates um, subsidized by um, selling at least half the distribution on one-year to five-year rates, i.e. higher rates.
1: Well, let's turn the tables a little bit and let's talk about Canada because one of the things that we've been very vocal about is when you look at the Bank of Canada's QE program, it's it looks over the long run to be an unstable structure. And by unstable, What I really mean is that the trajectory of QE is a bit too fast in Canada. And if you believe like I do that at some point, potentially at the October monetary policy report, or even earlier in 2021, if you do get an adjustment to QE, it's very clear what the move in cash would be, i.e. take support away from the long end of the curve, it should allow swap spreads to narrow, it should allow the curve to steepen out, and more broadly, it should allow Canadian duration to underperform, regardless of what the market direction is. But how do I take that view and I transplant that into volatility space? Because the dual question I have for you is, number one is, if you follow that line of thought, what do you think the impact is into your market? And more broadly, for those on the call today, what has QE done to the vol surface? Has it done anything? And does that surprise you at all?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, we really haven't seen too much impact um, from QE um, outside of just cheapening of general five-year tails. So uh, I would say that's more forward guidance impact than it is a QE um, impact. But uh, through the combined tools, we have seen a relative cheapening of vols in general, especially in the one-month to to one-year sort of space, um, expiry space. Um, To your earlier point, sorry, um, about the Bank of Canada's current QE trajectory being maybe a bit too aggressive. I do believe that it's a very fluid and dynamic situation right now, and they were relatively reactionary through the April, May, June periods as we were having significant issuance um, through the provinces and through the government. Um, It is logical that that is curtailed, and um, I do agree that you should see a steepening. Now, the knock-on effects for the surface, for me... Um, would be increased appetite for for shorter duration structured products. So something like a a five-year non-call one-year or um, a five-year cap floored structure, I think those are attractive given how low um, belly and front-end rates will remain. Uh, So any little pickup from volatility Um, is of help to investors. Now, the converse is really true on longer tails, right? Um, As you have a steepening curve, your incentive really to move into structured product or yield enhancement type trades is greatly reduced. And so I would expect the issuance that we've seen in 20-year and 10-year type structures should start moving towards the front end of the curve and more likely you see those investors moving to straight GOCs or into credit product.
1: That's a very good point. Thank you for that. That's interesting because I think one of the things that we don't often see is what those attendant moves are doing from the cash market to the swap market to the vol market. And in turn, that does trickle down into various parts of investors' portfolios. They do have these structured notes or these yield enhancement products. And to me, when I look at the market right now, it's very evident this is not an asset allocation market. This is very much a trading market. And one of the things that we've seen is that all these Innovations coming from the central banks, whether it's the Bank of Canada or the Fed or the ECB, has in theory reduced the attractiveness of owning rates as a core holding in your portfolio. The diversification isn't there. Geographical diversification isn't there. So if you think about some of the potential dampening effects of all this QE, one of the ones that we know is going to be potentially painful is some type of future introduction of yield curve control, yield caps. How do we think about vol that we've seen react in other markets like Japan or Australia when they have implemented yield curve control, yield curve caps, if that indeed is coming to North America, which I, we can argue that it it's a non-zero chance. I would argue it's probably a higher probability in Canada. How does that affect your market?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a volatility killer, um, really. Um, you've seen it in Japan. Um, JGB vols have done nothing but decline since then. Um, investors do believe that central banks are able to implement those caps um as has been seen by boj purchases um and so i think that that uh, it will lead to an effective cap and hence a real drop in volatility you are effectively truncating distribution to one side or not even to one side but just to an equivalent strangle so you do start seeing wings cheapen quite aggressively and you do start seeing the level of the general level of vol also uh, decrease. Now, on the flip side, you do have people looking at much more wing uh, based hedges. So they'll look at things that are like 5 or 10 delta going forward, whereas protection strikes were 20 or 25 deltas historically. So if they do see a move, they want to see a very large move and get paid uh, multiples for doing it.
1: So if we do move into that type of environment, do we see a resurgence of the activity we saw pre-COVID where you did have those very large programmatic sellers of vol? I know that went away a little bit. Can you comment on the types of flows that you're seeing in your market right now?
2: Yeah, um, the programmatic selling has actually been relatively absent, which is why um, vols in Canada specifically are, are significantly above U.S. levels. Um, there's not really great rhyme or reason other than a lack of supply. And I think uh, part of it is for one canada is a relative peripheral currency for most um alpha asset managers um and so it's not a natural place to look for it's after you've exhausted all possible um or after you've exhausted a significant um amount of uh bullets to spend in euro sterling uh us and to a lesser extent um australia So it it really is um, uh, a lack of selling. I don't know that we have them come back uh, in earnest until actual outright rate levels drop significantly. So one of the rationales why vols have been relatively elevated is that our swap spreads are significantly wider than the US and hence the all-in rates look much more attractive um, and they have further room to drop potentially um, if the bank comes in with further measures uh, whereas in the U.S., you're already at the zero bound in policy and swap spreads are are, significant, are pretty tight. So LIBOR levels, for example, are 24, 25 basis points, whereas CEDOR levels are levels are still up in the 50s.
1: What we've seen, that's a very good point. And let's lead into a discussion on some of the IBORs around the world because what we've seen correctly is in the U.S., you're right, you're kind of at that lower bound. And when you, we take that into the context of Canada, we've seen CEDOR being very stubborn to move. It's slowly been grinding lower. If you look at some of the competing assets in the short end, bills are very expensive to OIS. BP is relatively contained. BAs are effectively flat to OIS right now. And what that's done is it's slowly pushed CDOR in. And we will look at, for example, the BA CDOR basis, which is just a proxy measure of the bid offer between your primary and secondary markets. It's still relatively wide. I think that makes sense in a world where credit concern is still paramount in banking institutions. It's not clear to me that can come down anytime soon. So if you believe that, do you think there's a natural floor to door where it is around 50-ish? Do you think we're gonna go materially lower? And the reason I ask, Vivek, is because Canadian swap spreads, as swap spreads, as you rightly said, have traditionally always been higher than most other markets. In part, that reflected what our IBOR was, in part, it reflected very low levels of issuance. But that's been flipped on its head. And if if you do believe you are moving into an environment where the marginal buyer, which is the Bank of Canada, will be moving away, does that reorient swap spreads in Canada to be more closely aligned with their global counterparts? Yeah,
2: um, I would um, I would agree that there is probably a floor on CDOR rates um, not too far away from here. Um, we've just had bank earnings and commentary about NIMS being compressed has been significant. And so I don't think that... Uh, the bank who would want to encourage um, any instability um, in bank earnings or banks' um, robustness of capital, let's say, and so any erosion of NIM further, I think, uh, eats away at those sorts of capital buffers and earnings potentials, and so on and so forth. Now, I am no bank expert or bank analyst, um, but that is my general feeling um, that you don't necessarily want to see any further compression in NIMs, given we are a small banking, um, uh, we're a smaller banking economy than the US for example.
1: So does that leave any potential move lower in spreads as purely a function of the cash market in your mind?
2: Yeah, I would expect so. I would say it should trade just counter directional to the cash market in general.
1: And do you think, I mean, when you think about the tail risk in Canada, I know that we always make very big concerns about potential moves in the BOC and many times it doesn't prove to be as dramatic as we think it is. I just happen to think that people are underestimating how large of a move this could be because for a central bank that's never done QE before, I think they've done a very good job. I think it's very evident they have to tweak the program a little bit. But I think the risks around implementation or even communication about doing it are very, very high. And I'm not suggesting we get a taper tantrum like we did in 2013, but I do think there is a material risk where you can have Canada diverge from the rest of the G7 when you have this adjustment period happening.
2: Just to that point, I think um, we have seen that the bank has been very responsive to market reaction to their QE announcements and to the size of their uh, purchases versus what issuance is coming in the pipeline. So I would expect that we may see a very um, localized move higher and potentially a taper tantrum, but I think that might be a bit excessive. Um, But that will be um, controlled by the bank.
1: So we're going into the balance of the year. Uh, everyone's coming back to work relatively soon, issuance should be increasing quite a bit going forward. Uh, Given the outright level of rates, maybe that lets issuers stay short a little bit. Are you seeing any activity that would suggest that some of the rate-locking activity by issuers is moving into the volatility space, or is it still very much remain a swap-driven business?
2: Yeah, I think um, there is, given the swap spreads represent roughly 50% of the level of rate currently, um, we have seen an increased uh, demand from issuers to buy volatility-based hedges, um, specifically in bond option space. Um, and so if for issuers that historically would issue versus a bond spread, they would look to the swaption market as a relatively good alternative um, in that liquidity was better and bid offers generally tighter. Um, they're now looking at bond options because it's unclear that the swap spread level will be stable and provide them with an effective hedge if they bought a payer instead of buying a, a put on a bond option.
1: Interesting. I think that's a very important development. And we should talk about that going forward because I think it's interesting because one of the things that's happened to the Canadian market this year is, you know, I hate to say it, it's become a real market. And a real market in the sense that issuance is so high auctions start to matter, setups start to matter, understanding QE starts to matter. And as you have these trends in the very esoteric parts of the bond market, it does create new opportunities. Like we were just talking about issuers hedging rates, the way they do so changes, the products change a little bit. So I think it's a very evolving market. It's actually a very exciting time in Canada. And with that said, what are your favorite trades right now?
2: Yeah, so um, we uh, quite like being short the the left side of the surface here, Um, so specifically for vol, so being short caps and floors, being short one year to five year tails, I think those are all excellent trades. Um, Very simple things for yield enhancement for things like uh, three month, five year strangles, 15 basis point each side strangle, Um, still a uh, 15% premium to the US. And I really do think that the Bank of Canada, while it may have some... uh, hairiness around long-end purchases as they change their QE program, I do believe that five-year and in um, will be relatively um, range-bound. Additionally, I think that the steepener in general does make sense. So on a Delta-1 basis, I think um, 510 steepeners in general and 530 steepeners in general um, are attractive and should remain so until the narrative really materially changes from the um, wage growth side in the U.S.
1: I agree, and that's pretty consistent with some of the trades we have on in the research book right now. We generally like any type of variant of five ten steepening in cash. that really speaks to the issuance profile. It speaks to the potential of a, a, a tantrum building beneath the surface. We've expressed it in the five ten spread to spread flattener it hasn't been working too well, but it hasn't been working against us yet. I do think you need a bit of a catalyst to get that to flatten out. What about in the short end? When I look at the back strip and I look at what's priced in the curve, again, we have our first hike priced kind of mid-2023. When you look at the reds in Canada, they do look a little bit steep within the recent ranges. Do you fight that? What's your thoughts on the curve right now in the boxes?
2: Yeah, so actually, I haven't been playing any of the red boxes. Um They have been cheap, but I think they've richened up to a, a reasonably fair level, and um, uh, I don't think there's that much room for them to rally from, from here, maybe six or, or seven basis points. What I do also like, though, um, against shortfall or steepening position is received one-year OAS. Um, it feels like a bit of a free option here. Um, if you look at what the U.S. forward curves have done through the past three months, you know we have priced in potential for negative rates. Now, we don't need to have that necessarily in Canada, but I do think from a 24 basis point mid-level right now, I think you could see it trade down to 15. Um, as and when um, stimulus from the federal government starts to recede, and potentially some consumer defaults or an increase in uh, delinquencies starts to rear its head. I, I think the immediate market reaction will be to price some of that. And so um, against those types of trades, i.e. steepeners or outright shorts and long end rates, I think um, uh, having a received in the very, very front end um, is quite attractive.
1: I would agree. And I think when you look at one-year, one-year OAS versus one-year, it has moderated from the worst. It's about plus 10 right now. But to me, that still looks relatively steep to other parts of the G7, particularly as we get into the thick of the election setup. So with that said, I guess my question to you is, in CAD, even though we don't have the same politics in the U.S., is the U.S. election impact in the vol market trickling into Canada? And does that make that... Delivered ratio seem even more erratic in your mind.
2: Um, It it, um, has so if you look at the US market the elections worth about another um, An extra 10 to 11 business days Um, in Canada. It's about six to eight Um, It seems like it's about fair if you look at what happened during the Trump election in 2016 um, the markets were similar on ratio and if you look at what happened and eventuated the following that night and the following morning um, those seem like fair levels. It's not a, a made-in-Canada story, uh, be it Trump or Biden. So it's not logical that Canada should under or outperform either way, uh, depending on
1: the outcome. So you think it's just a normal amount of spillover that it's not going to go away, don't hedge against that, and it's going to be what it is until you're through the event?
2: Yes, I do think so. I do think so. Uh, you know, it, it, typically, though, um, these events do start cheapening up as uh, you approach the event. Um, the danger really is if it's a coin toss into the event and then they they rich in very quickly.
1: Listen, I think that we've covered a huge amount of ground today, and I think if we have to summarize what we talked about, number one is that I think the move that we saw yesterday was a bit complicated in nature. Maybe it means a bit more than just is steepening because inflation is going to run hotter over time. I think it reflects either some type of balance of a higher terminal rate over time and potentially the fact that rates in the front end are going to stay low for a very long time because implicit in that relationship is the fact that the Fed has now allowed themselves a bit more room to stay dovish throughout this period. Number two is that when you look at Canada, some of the surface that you said doesn't really make too much sense. Some of it is a function of the natural spillover just given the time of the year, proximity to the election, but general nuances that we need to be aware of because you have some idiosyncratic developments coming from the Bank of Canada. Uh, Finally, if you had to leave all of our listeners with some lasting words, what would they be?
2: Uh, Be safe and enjoy back to school.
1: I hope everyone has a great weekend. I hope everyone's safe. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. And remember, no bonds were harmed in the making of this podcast.
0: The information and data contained herein has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets, and we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets, Inc., and or any affiliate thereof, shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication, and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. This communication, including any attachments, is confidential and has been prepared by the Rates and Strategy Desk within the Global Markets Group at CIBC Capital Markets. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. Services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce include corporate lending services, foreign exchange, money market instruments, structured notes, interest rate products, and OTC derivatives. CIBC's foreign exchange disclosure statement relating to guidelines contained in the FX Global Code can be found at www.cibccm.com slash FX Disclosure. Other products and services such as exchange-traded equity and equity options, fixed income securities, are offered through directly or indirectly held subsidiaries of CIBC as indicated below. The contents of this communication are based on macro and yield curve analysis, market events and general institutional desk discussion. The authors of this communication is not a research analyst and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc research department nor should it be construed as a research report. The authors of this communication is not a person or company with actual, implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in the communication. The commentary and any attachments, other than any attached CIBC World Markets, Inc. branded research reports and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual authors, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. The authors may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to the securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. The contents of this message are tailored for particular client needs and accordingly this message is intended for the specific recipient only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. If you are not the intended recipient, please reply to this email and delete this communication and any copies without forwarding them. Distribution in Hong Kong. This communication has been approved and is issued in Hong Kong by Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch, a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, the SFO, to professional investors, as defined in clauses A to H of the definition thereof set out in Schedule One of the SFO. Any recipient in Hong Kong who has any questions or requires further information on any matters arising from or relating to this communication should contact Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch at Suite 3602 Cheung Kong Centre, 2 Queens Road Central, Hong Kong. Telephone number 852-2841-6111. Distribution in Singapore. This communication is intended solely for distribution to accredited investors, expert investors, and institutional investors, each an eligible recipients. Eligible recipients should contact Danny Tan at Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Singapore Branch at 16 Collier Quay, number 04-02 Singapore, 049318. Telephone number 656423-3806. In respect of any matter arising from or in connection with this report. Distribution in Japan. This communication is distributed in Japan by CIBC World Markets Japan, Inc. Distribution in Australia. Communications concerning derivatives and foreign exchange contracts are distributed in Australia to professional investors within the meaning of the Corporations Act 2001 by CIBC World Markets, Inc. Communications concerning securities are distributed in Australia by CIBC Australia Limited. License number 240603. ACN 00063256 to CIBC Capital Markets clients. CIBC World Markets Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. In the United States, CIBC World Markets Corps is a member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and the Securities Investor Protection Fund. CIBC World Markets Place is authorized by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and Prudential Regulation Authority. CIBC World Markets Securities Ireland Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Sydney Branch, ABN 33608 235 847 is an authorized foreign bank branch regulated by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, APRA. CIBC Australia Limited, AFSL No. 240603, is regulated by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. CIBC World Markets Japan, Inc. is a member of the Japanese Securities Dealer Association. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong branch is a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, CAP 571. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore branch is an offshore bank licensed and regulated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Unauthorized use, distribution, duplication, or disclosure without the prior written permission of CIBC World Markets, Inc. is prohibited and may result in prosecution.